Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. Today on the podcast, we're talking to the first cancer survivor to stand on top of the world. Welcome to the Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. I'm your host, Josh Friedemann, and our guest today used to have the goal of crawling eight feet from the hospital bed to the bathroom. Today, he's the only person to summit Mount Everest, the highest six peaks on the other six continents, and complete the Hawaii Ironman, all after surviving two deadly cancers. In addition to all of that, he only has one lung. He's been voted one of the top eight most inspirational people of all time and is the first cancer survivor to stand on top of the world. Here is Sean Swarner. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Wow, I appreciate it. That's, that's a great intro. Well, it's your life right there. I mean, I'm excited to, to talk with you about all sorts of things today. But before we get into talking about your life in particular, there are a few questions that I like to ask every person who comes on the show to help us to get to know them better. And then particularly so that you can give us insight for us to apply to our own lives. So you ready for these? Let's do it. What is some lesson saying or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? How about a story? I, um, I want to go back to the side of Mount Everest, Camp 3, which is on the side of what's called the Lhotse Ice Face. And it's a 45-degree angle, a sheet of bulletproof ice where you have to dig down and out to plop your tent. And one, one wrong step, like a half inch in one direction, you, you'll, just, you'll tumble a mile down to your death. And I remember going to bed one night, I was actually tethered to the mountain, so I wouldn't slide down. <laughs> it's crazy. And I remember eating that night, dehydrated beef stew and like the spiral noodles, the little beef chunks, round peas, the cube carrots. And I remember going to bed around say seven o'clock and waking up about 11 hours later, just feeling this massive wave of, of nausea coming over me. And I, I unzipped the tent as quickly as I possibly could. I projectile vomited everything out and I could still see the little cubed carrots, the orange peas, the spiral noodles and the beef chunks, which meant that my body was shutting down because of the altitude. So I was suffering what was, what was called high-altitude cerebral edema, which is altitude-induced swelling of the brain. And my body was just literally just not functioning. But I also knew that if I just kind of let it go and I just relaxed a little bit and stopped putting so much stress and pressure on myself, that it was just, it was going to be a passing moment. You know, and I think looking at leadership, people have to realize that oftentimes what you're going through in the moment will also pass, but you have to have a, a determined attitude to reach your summit because two days later, I ended up reaching the top of the world. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is humble yet confident. <laughs> so you can use three descriptors. So I'll take humble yet confident, but if you had to add a couple other things, what else would you add to that? I would say focused on bringing out the best quality in others and a growth slash open mindset. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? So I take a group up Kilimanjaro every year as a fundraiser for a cancer side, cancer charity. And our success rate is double that of the average. 
And I ask myself all the time, would I want to climb Kilimanjaro with myself? So I think with leaders, people need to ask themselves, would I want to work for myself? Would I want to be associated with this guy? I like that. That's good. And also just out of curiosity, what's the success rate for climbing Kilimanjaro? You said you have twice the success rate with your group. What's the average success rate? Do you know? The average of of the entire mountain is 48%. So 52 people out of 100 don't make it. We're at 98%. That's got to be very encouraging or kind of fortifying to know that 98% of people that you're taking are having success. And so like if you're with your group, that's a lot of pressure and a good way to actually finish what you started. True, true, true. But I, the, I think the thing is, I don't feel that pressure because we're the only group on the mountain singing, dancing, telling jokes, having a good time. And the summit becomes a byproduct of having fun. So we're enjoying the process. We're enjoying, we're truly enjoying the journey as opposed to looking up at the mountain, thinking to myself, oh God, oh God, <laughs> it's, it's fun. So that reminds me when I was, this is nowhere near the same as Kilimanjaro and we're kind of going off script here. But when I was a a young kid, my dad coached all of our soccer teams and he didn't want to remember all the different names. So he just came up with one. His first team ever was called the Speeders. And then from, from there on out, it was, we were all the Speeders, just our jersey color plus Speeders. So the blue Speeders, the hot pink Speeders. And what he would always say is the only way to lose is to not have fun. Now we ended up having probably more undefeated teams in the history of the YMCA than, than you know, anyone else. And we had a lot of fun doing it. But I, I think sometimes when you put away the pressure, then you actually can have a lot more success in what you're doing. And I, I really appreciate you drawing that out of your experience there. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if, if you're worried about making it to the top and so fixated, focused on the top, you, you're not going to make it. And so many people go, go up to Kilimanjaro and they say, I'm going to conquer that mountain. But I guarantee you, if Mother Nature has her way as you versus her, she's going to kick your butt every single time. True, true. All right. So next question is this. What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? Oh, I've read so many of them. Could this be a, a shameless self-promotion? Every once in a while it happens. Go for it. <laughs> I, just, I just signed an agreement with a, a publishing house, and we're putting together a book about my Everest trip. But it's entitled Conquering Your Everest. So that'll be out soon. And it fits into a program put together called the Summit Challenge. And you can also go to thebighillchallenge.com. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? I would help them fully understand and grasp what their personal core values are. And not, not just what they are, but how to utilize them. And I'm going to ask you about that a little bit more in just a second, along with a couple other things I've written down. But our final question, and we call this our arbitrary but insightful question, is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I would say with, with the two cancers I've been through, for years I asked myself why. You know, like Why me? Why me? Why me? But the truth of the matter is I may never know the answer to that question. So I think why not? is better uh, because why never changes the facts. It never changes the situation. Why not potentially opens your mind to possibilities and opportunities as opposed to searching endlessly for answers you may never find. We'll be back with the rest of our interview right after this. As the leader of your organization, you have a lot on your plate. You work most of your day, leaving you little time to think about your own development. 
there's a resource for you and it's called the Leadership Action List. Get the best leadership development tips for leaders by leaders at leadershipactionlist.com. The best news, it's free. Once again, for a year's worth of weekly leadership development, download the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. So, Sean, we've shared a little bit about your bio in you know, at the very beginning of the episode before we started the actual interview portion. And I think it'd be really helpful for people just to hear kind of what all of that looks like. You know, you've, you've gone out, you've climbed all the highest peaks on every continent. You've done all sorts of other amazing feats. You have only one lung. You've survived cancers. When, when people hear that, it's all just kind of like thrown at them within 70 words. But could you share with us? And, and I, you know, we don't have time to, to just go on forever about this, but I'd love to just hear a little bit from you about your life and give people a slightly greater glimpse into what all of that looked like for you and how it's shaped you into who you are today. Absolutely. And the first thing that comes to my mind is just kind of throwing it back on you for a second. Imagine you're going to bed and you're terrified to close your eyes because you don't know if you're going to wake up the next day. That was my reality for years. Every night I went to bed, I didn't know if I was going to wake up the next morning. I didn't know if I was going to die in my sleep because no one's ever had these two cancers before. And I go in once a year for a checkup Doctors still, you know, they, they take my blood. I get a CAT scan once in a while. And I, the way I see it is I got another year to live. So no one's ever had those two cancers before. The chances of me surviving both Hodgkin's and Askin's sarcoma is equivalent to winning the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers. I mean, the, you're, you're looking at a living, breathing, walking miracle, I think. And I, I, from such a young age, the first cancer was 13. Second cancer was 16, 17 years old. So my whole teen years were, were battling cancer. So looking back when you were 13, 14 years old, you were probably worried about being popular in the eighth grade freshman high school. I, I was worried about fighting for my life and living. So I, I developed this concept a long time ago that I, I never got caught up in other people's drama. I never got caught up in what, what other people wanted for me. And I remember when I, was, when I was 13, 60 pounds overweight, bald from head to toe on the bottom of the shower floor, pulling chunks of hair out of the drain, weeping. And I remember that I, I was thinking to myself, okay, you know, this might be it. You know, I might be dying again. But I realized that I, I essentially had two choices. I could fight for my life or give up and die. And the latter is not an option. I, I just didn't want to do that. I, I kept thinking about, well, you know, what, how, how much would that hurt mom and dad? You know, how painful would it be for my family? I wasn't really too concerned about myself because I think looking back at it, hindsight being twenty twenty. I don't think I fully understood what death meant. I don't think I fully understood the ramifications of potentially having cancer and dying. When I was 13, when I was 16, the second time, I had a deeper understanding of what was going to happen because I went through it the first one, the, the first cancer. I went through it the first time. I didn't want to go through it again. And this time around, the doctors, because the treatments were so harsh, they put me in a medically induced coma for a year. I don't remember being 16 years old. So I, I developed a completely different perspective than most people, I think. And I, I, want, I want to teach people the, that, that perspective without having to go through what I went through because it's, it's not difficult. You know, we, we, we can change in a state of, of pain and agony like I did, or you can change in a, a state of um, happiness, growth, and learning. It's a choice, absolutely choice. So when did you finally recover from your second cancer? How old were you when that happened? Almost, oh, I would say 17. So I had cancer from 13 to 17 years old. 
And did you go to college after that? Did you kind of uh, start to have a life that, that people would define as more normal or where and why did you head down this path of, of so many other incredible feats? I was, I'm laughing because my college years were like Belushi from Animal House. I, I had a blast. I was reliving my high school years that were taken from me. And then all of a sudden I was, I was the party animal in college. I started off molecular bio thinking I was going to cure cancer by splicing genes. But if, if you're partying, it's, it's really difficult to take uh, organic chemistry and immunology and get a decent grade. <laughs> so I focused on what I thought could help more people because it took me a long time to actually deal with what I went through. And it wasn't until I was in grad school studying to be a psychologist for cancer patients that I stopped and I stared myself in the mirror and I asked myself those difficult questions of who are you? What do you want from life? Because as I mentioned before, my future literally was the next day. And now all of a sudden the doctor says, hey, you're, you're in remission. Go have a great life. Like, okay, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? And I had no clue. But five, six years later, maybe moving from Ohio down to Jacksonville, Florida, that's when I stopped and then I was removed from everything. But I realized that no matter where I went, I would still have this baggage of the cancer. So I finally decided, okay, now's the time. Let's deal with it. I looked at myself in the mirror and asked those questions, realized that I couldn't help anybody else until I helped myself. And that's when I did some investigating and realized, you know, no one, and I, I just kept thinking bigger and bigger and bigger. Initially, I thought maybe I could run across the country and visit local hospitals across, across the country. And then reality hit me. I was like, that's a lot of running. That's a lot of training. So then I, I just kept thinking bigger and bigger and bigger. And with my brother's help, we found that no cancer survivor had ever climbed Everest before. And I thought I was going to use that as a 29,000 foot platform to scream hope. And so would you say that everything you're doing today is that same uh, desire, that same platform of trying to give hope to people? And I guess specifically to those who are battling cancer? hundred percent. It, it definitely started off with the, the cancer world uh, because when I climbed Everest, I had a flag that was, um, you know, about two feet by a foot. They had names of people touched by cancer and it was always folded up in my chest pocket close to my heart because that was my hope. That was my inspiration. And when I got to the summit of the world, I wrapped that flag around the top of the world, essentially commemorating the struggle of cancer patients worldwide. And then I took a flag to the top of the highest mountain on every continent took it to the South Pole, took it to the North Pole, the Hawaii Ironman. And now I, I want this, this message to get out to more and more people. I want it to get out to the world and, and empower them to go after their dreams, whatever their Everest is. You know, you don't have to climb the physical Everest. Your, your, your mountain might be getting off the couch and walking around the block. And that's perfectly fine because my first goal, as you mentioned, was to literally crawl from the hospital bed to the bathroom. So let me ask you this, and, and you can answer this for yourself, but I'm thinking for other people, maybe they can find your answer or your advice helpful. There are probably a lot of people out there who are like you that have already done incredible things. What does the next step look like? Would you recommend that leaders always look for the bigger and the better? What does it look like to begin um, changing or pivoting after you've had so much success in life already? Well, I think realizing that if you're constantly chasing something, you know, something external, like the mountain peaks, for example, you know, or constantly um, going after this, this, the next house, whatever it might be, the, the, your third or fourth Ferrari, you know, it doesn't matter. Know that whatever you're chasing is, is right there. You know, looking, looking at the, um, the feats that I've, I've, I've 
accomplished. I don't need those exterior things to make me feel worthy. You don't need a Bugatti to feel value. You know, people don't realize that it's it's the other way around. You have to feel value or you have to feel worthy before you buy some or before you have something of value. And so many people are looking for these exterior uh, reinforcers, I suppose, to give them something that lasts uh, maybe a month and then they're back, back to where they normally are. So you have to look inward and find that peace inside you before you, you find something that you're looking for outside, if that makes sense. It does, and that transitions us to something that I had made a note of earlier, which is the idea of personal core values. What would you recommend people do to identify those if they don't feel like they have a good idea of what their personal core values are today? Send me a message. I actually put together a core values assessment. <laughs> And it goes a little bit further because I, I take people through my personal core values assessment and I have them write down their top 10, but then also rank them of how they're actually living those. And then through a series of steps, I can walk them through bookending your day, which literally reprograms your brain through neuroplasticity, then vivid visualization. Then I walk them through mindfulness, the compound effect. And one of the big things is I help them with their gales, which are the gremlins, the interpretations, the assumptions, and the limiting beliefs. And those are the things that hold people back. If you understand what your personal core values are and where you're lacking, you now have a visual representation. You, you know exactly where you can start focusing most of your energy. There's another thing you said before we started recording the interview, and you mentioned the, the fun aspect of being difficult. So could you share with us a little bit about that? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there right now who are in difficult situations, and they would love to be able to identify the fun aspect in that difficult situation. There are so many difficult aspects of climbing mountains. You know, so many difficult aspects of running and, and finishing the Hawaii Ironman which is a uh, two and a half mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, you finish with a marathon. And there are so many difficult aspects of skiing to both the North and South Poles. I mean, one of them is the complete obvious. It's 80, 80 below zero. You know, there's nothing fun in that. <laughs> but there is fun if you look hard enough, if you look at things from a different perspective. So one night we, um, we get stuck in uh, a snowstorm on Denali. And we got more snow in two nights than the entire Alaska range did the whole winter. So I, I woke up in the middle of the night sweating. I'm in my 40 below sleeping bag. And at th- that cold a temperature, snow becomes an insulator. So I unzipped my sleeping bag, threw it off me, rolled over and my tent was right on my nose. And then I poked it and I was like, oh, this, 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 this isn't good. So I dug myself out. You know, and then eventually um, we used our avalanche probes to find other tents. So we dug out our little campsite, dug a little trail to the next campsite, dug that out and continued on. But if you took an aerial picture of it, it would kind of look like a cross section of an ant farm. And then while we were stuck there, we ended up digging a snow cave. You know, we dug, um, the only thing was huge. We, we made a snow TV. Uh, we made a little bar and we, we had fun with those things. Like if you're stuck somewhere, manufacture fun. Stop complaining, stop whining, do, do the best with what you have. If you look for the fun aspects of the difficult situations, it's going to pass, it's going to seem like it passes much quicker and you can tolerate it so much better. 
So is that something that you bring to maybe in that particular situation you brought to the crew? Or is that the mentality of people who put themselves through difficult situations? They just have to find the fun because I feel like there are different personality types where when the rubber meets the road, people focus in. You're suggesting that people seek the fun aspects of life. But there are those personality types, it seems like, that they, they naturally focus in on let's get to work, let's get things done. I think it's both. I mean, it, first of all, it takes a different mindset to be comfortable with not showering for weeks at a time by sleeping in a tent on the side of a mountain. And I think it also, you, you do have the different personalities on the mountain. Type A, type B, you have different ones who, um, who are constant, constant pessimists. And those are the ones who probably save your life more often than not on the mountain. Like, I don't know, it's not that good of a day to go climbing today. And you, you listen to them and then you hear that the group who did leave never came back. But I think what I do is I, with even with the Kilimanjaro trips, I bring in the, the aspects of, of fun. And, and I want people to understand if you go to bed with an attitude of gratitude, you're not going to be worried about everything you didn't get accomplished. You know, a, a perfect example on, on Kilimanjaro, every evening when we're, our group's sitting down to dinner, there, it never fails. People kind of go around the table. Oh my God, my feet are killing me. My back is, my back hurts. My pack weighs a thousand pounds. And I let them go, let them get it out. But then I tell them, or I ask them, I'll point to somebody like, all right, now give me five things you're grateful for today. Because that reprograms the brain and focuses again on the positive aspects of things. You know, and how can we utilize that to help one another to maintain that elevated attitude? So in just a second, I want you to share with us where people can find more about you and especially some of the things you have in the works right now. But before that, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with, whether it's something that you'd like to reiterate from our conversation today or something we just haven't had a chance to talk about yet? I think the the biggest thing is the BigHillChallenge.com. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. It is the next evolution of the personal growth industry simply because it's a one-size-fits-all challenge, but it utilizes your personal core values. And it's not some guru who's, who's up on stage saying, hey, I know everything. Do this, this, and this, and you'll make a million dollars in a month. It, it, that doesn't work. We're all individuals. We all have unique perspectives on everything that we see. So why don't you go after and utilize your personal core values and you, use those to keep you on your personal path? to guide yourself to whatever top of the, whatever peak you're reaching for. So in addition to BigHillChallenge.com, anywhere else that you would recommend people go to find out more about you and the work you've done so far? Absolutely. Just go to SeanSwarner.com. Sean like Sean Connery and then just like the Warner Brothers, but slap an S on the front. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, man. Thank you, Josh. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Sean. If you did, go ahead and check out TheBigHillChallenge.com. That link as well as others are in the show notes below or at LifeAsLeadership.com. Now, if you are interested in that step-by-step improvement that Sean talked about, after you go to TheBigHillChallenge.com, I encourage you to go to download your free copy of the Leadership Action List at LeadershipActionList.com. These are step-by-step ways to improve your leadership. One action you can take each week for an entire year. And this isn't one of those downloads that you just sign up for and forget about because what I'll do is I will send you one of these actions each week to your inbox every Monday at 6 a.m. to remind you to keep engaged, to keep improving in your leadership.
Once again, if you like that type of encouragement and improvement in your life, you can download the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.